Well, let's get going today. Let's start off in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. We read this every week and we will continue to do so because we got to believe it. We got to get that passage down inside of our hearts that we know that the Word of God says and that what it says is true. We've got to get to the point where we accept the Word for what it is. You know, I find it sad today, we were discussing this this morning, um, that, that we have a culture that has an idea of who God is without ever questioning the ideas that they have. They get a belief about God, either good or bad, and then they just run with it without ever asking the question. It's like, well, how did I ever come to the conclusion that that is truly the character of God? The idea today that, you know, everybody is going to heaven if you're a good person or whatever, where did that idea come from? Because we know it did not originate from the Bible. We know that it didn't come from the inspired Word of God, that we're, there is nobody good. And so therefore, because of that, that we need a Savior. But where do we get these ideas? And we just run with it. We're so confident in our, our belief systems that we never begin to question thinking, what if I'm wrong? You know, the consequences of being wrong in this situation are eternal. You can be wrong doctrinally about a lot of things, but when it comes to the idea of eternity with Christ or not, you can't be wrong there. There is no second guessing. We've got to stick to the Word. We've got to find people in this world that are so committed to Scripture that they will not waver in any capacity. People so committed to Scripture that no matter what they hear in the pulpit, the TV, the radio, I don't care what it is, that when they hear an error, they are quick to recognize the error for what it is. It doesn't make the person a bad person. It means that somebody is misguided. All it comes back to is the Word of God. I got asked a while back by somebody from a, uh, the, a pastoral authority position. What authority does a pastor have over your life? And the answer... Zero. That's an unpopular statement, but the answer is zero. What authority is on our life? It is Scripture. But according to Scripture, that what Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ. You see, that's where the authority comes from. What I tell you is irrelevant if it's not grounded in the Word. It doesn't make any difference, and I don't care who stands up here, or who comes after me, or if we bring in a guest, if they say something that's unscriptural, is we've got to go back to the Word. And that is where we've been, is this idea of what happened to the power of God. Because according to Scripture, God never changes. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He was powerful. Man, was He powerful. I mean, to think about this, we kind of take this for granted. But in the beginning, you had nothing, and then He created everything. You can't do that. There's a joke that went around uh, that God was arguing with the scientists, and the, the scientists were saying, listen, I, we can do the same thing that you do. You know, we can create out of nothing. And he's like, really? Well, how are you going to do that? And the scientist says, well, first we're going to take a little bit of dirt. And God says, no, no, no. Get your own dirt. You see, I mean, even Lawrence Krauss, who's an a, a, a astroscientist, astrophysicist, he's a theoretical physicist, which I always found interesting. So your, your basis of everything is on the theory of astrophysics, which means that you could be wrong. That's his whole basis. But he says that the universe can and will create itself out of nothing because when we have a vacuum, that it's possible for gravity to come in and implode, thus creating everything. There's two problems here. You're using the word nothing in two different definitions. There's the nothing, which is nothing, which according to Aristotle is what rocks dream of. And then you have the nothing, which he's calling a vacuum and gravity, both nothing. But those are some things. You see, we've got to get back to Scripture. Allow God to be our guide. Allow Him to lead us. What happened to the power of God? We left God. God didn't leave us. 
When I hear stories, and you guys are going to hear some of these here in the coming weeks, and I'm excited to get to that, but when I hear stories about God doing miracles in lives of, of people, supernatural healings, blind open, deaf ears being restored, people that could not walk getting up and walk, the stuff we read about in the book of Acts, I can't wait to tell you some of the stories of stuff that's going on today and stuff that's been going on the last 2,000 years. You just don't hear about it. We have whitewashed the Christian church history to make it fit our narratives. But man, God moves today. There are stories of people that were dead coming back to life. Not as a result of you know, shocking the heart into order. You know, the thing is, is that we're so quick to dismiss it because it's like, well, okay, but there's an explanation for that. There is an explanation for that. God. So when we look at this, we're under, wondering what happened to the power of God. Part of our problem is, is we don't have any idea of what the Bible says when it comes to the things of God. We know about God, but we don't know God. We don't know him intimately. Psalm 103 is a passage by a man who knew God intimately. That he's praising God. That when he sat down to worship the Lord, he was remembering the goodness of God. It's easy to praise God when things are good. Forget not his benefits and all the things that he does. And so we began to look at this here recently and the idea of what Jesus was talking about, about his body being broken. And I've asked you guys for every day for 30 days to take communion. Every single day, remembering that covenant, because that's the key. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. There's something about that covenant that brings forth forgiveness. And you think about what you've been forgiven for, boy, does that make it easier to forgive other people. Because let's face it, people can suck sometimes. They're mean, they're rude. Even people that we love and people that we believe, family members will say things to you that will cut you to the core. And yet God says, well, forgive them because you've been forgiven. Sometimes that's easier to say than to do. But the bottom line is this, is when we look at the work of Jesus, we're like, you know what? I see what he did for me. Every time we take that, it was a memorial. Every time we, we, we take a part of this, it's a memorial of what he has done, that his body was broken. By his stripes, we are healed. What does that mean? It means that the work that Jesus did on the cross took care of us, spirit, soul, and body. And with that, entering into the new covenant comes to a very important part, and that's what we began to look at last week, is that when the new covenant was introduced, something changed. There was a changing of the guard. Something was introduced for the first time in human history that had never happened before on this earth. And now it's something that we completely take for granted. And so let's look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scripture. That's a powerful statement. We'll come back to that. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer to, and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and the remissions of sin should be preached in his name and all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Verse 49, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Acts chapter 2. We'll get there in a minute. But look at how powerful this is. You see, Jesus is now resurrected. And he opened their understanding to comprehend the Scriptures. Well, what is the Scriptures? It's what we call the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, he's walking with them and he explained everything to them, starting at the beginning. That the law and the prophets and the Psalms 
would be fulfilled. It was necessary out of those that Jesus must suffer and must rise from the dead the third day. And we've looked at that. We've looked at what happened there. You see, according to the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and He would die, suffering painful death. His body would be broken. His blood shed. But the result of that is a new covenant. And a lot of times we stop there. We stop saying, okay, man, that's great. But He says, here's what I need you to do. I send the promise of My Father upon you. But I need you to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are dude with power from on high. What is he talking about here? What does it mean to tarry? It means to wait. We don't use that word anymore. Why is he telling him to wait in Jerusalem? See, here's what's going on. You have to remember what's taking place here. You have the feast of uh, Passover. It's when he died. He was resurrected on first fruit. Then there's a gap of time. Getting to Pentecost. So when they came in, Every able-bodied male Jew had to be in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. Unleavened bread had to be there for that week. But another one was the Feast of Pentecost. So he's telling them, like, listen, don't leave. I need you to stay. I need you to hang out. I need you to be here. I need you to wait for the power of God to come upon you. Hang out. Don't leave. That's powerful words. Because what do we do today? When somebody gives their life to Christ, we're like, Go. Get to work. Time is short. I almost didn't go to Bible school. And I'll tell you why. Because time was short. I don't have time to go and learn and get trained, man. People are going to hell. Jesus is returning. We got to get after it. Obviously, I had a few gaps in there since it's been a few years since I've been there. But I mean, that was my mentality because my entire life, that's all I heard. And I remember one of the people from uh, Rama saying, and I mean, you know, yeah, they have a little bit of an interest in this, you know, because you are paying them to go to school. That training time is never wasted time. And so I'm sitting like, okay, but boy, I'll tell you what, I was ready to go. Let's do this. Let's get after it. Let's go change the world. My goodness, was I not ready. Because we need to do what Jesus said. I need you to wait until you're endued with power from on high. The promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? Where did that promise come in? Well, we look at Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to start in verse 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. And to me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. Look at that. God judged. Who would have guessed? Anyway. That was a joke. Stay with me. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said to them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Now remember what's happening. The nation of Israel was separated, beginning with Abraham. I want you to go, and you are going to be my people. You're going to follow me. They were never to have a king. They were supposed to follow God as an example to all the other nations that here is the God of this world, The God of creation, the God among all gods, it says that in Psalm 82, it is that the other watchers, these angels were put over the other nations, supposed to direct worship towards God, but they didn't. But Israel was to be an example. That's why they had these weird laws. Don't eat that food. Take a day off. Worship God. Don't do anything on the day. It was contrary to what was going on. They were supposed to be separated, yet because of their behavior, they have not profaned their name. They profaned the name of God. 
Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but it's for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water, on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. You see, this is a, a portion of the gospel. He's saying, when I start this covenant, when we create this thing, here's what I'm going to do. What hand did Israel have in this? Nothing. This was a promise to them. They didn't have to do anything. God's going to take care of everything. I'm going to sprinkle you and make you clean. What did they have to do? They had to cleanse themselves. They'd mikvah all the time. They would constantly clean themselves because they had to be ceremonially cleansed. That was what the shedding of blood did that made atonement on their behalf that they were temporarily cleansed until they missed something, until they messed up. It's like the day of atonement, which is coming up here pretty quick, is that the, the high priest would have to go in there and he would have to do all the sacrifices on for himself, cleanse himself, then he would mikvah once again, and then he would represent the nation as a whole going into the Holy of Holies. And if he screwed it up, he died. But who did all the work there? It was him. But God says, no, I'm changing this. I am going to make you clean. And I'm going to give you a new heart. And then I'm going to put a new spirit within you. That means that the one that we had is no longer around. We have a new one. I'm going to take out that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. But then I will put my spirit within you. We know what that's talking about. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus just said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high, because it's the promise of the Father. Now, here's the question. Is the Holy Spirit here given in Ezekiel 36 the same as that he was telling them to wait for? Is there more than one Holy Spirit? No, there's not. But are those two things the same? Well, we have to understand what's going on here. Because first of all, we have to see what's, what's taking place. When did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? Most people will say it's Acts chapter 2, Right? We know, we're going to read it here shortly, that the Holy Spirit fell down upon them. They all spoke in tongues. People thought they were drunk. Crazy things were happening, right? It's a new day in Jerusalem. But we got to deal with John chapter 20 and verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And he, as he said this, he showed them his hands, his side, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he has said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There's an apostolic authority there. But that should remind you of several things. First thing it should remind you of is, is when was life given on this earth? When he breathed the breath of life and gave the Ruach, the Spirit to man, created but there's another passage in Ezekiel. It's the dry bones passage. We breathe life once again into the dry bones, a symbol of Israel, giving life to them once again. But he says specifically, receive the Holy Spirit. So my question to you is this, is did they receive the Holy Spirit? I say yes, right? But what was Jesus talking about that we read previously? 
talking about something different. You see, the spirit within promised in Ezekiel 36 and the wait until you're endued with power from on high seem to be two different events, which is interesting. Because the promise of the covenant is that we'll have a new spirit. We are cleansed by the sprinkling of the water of the word, that we are cleansed by the blood of the lamb, and that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But we're going to see here in Acts chapter 2 that the spirit came upon them. So we'll come back to that. But here's the question. This is what we began to look at last week is how can this happen? Because you have going on here with the, uh, uh, the, the new covenant is you've got an old covenant that you have to deal with. Because the old covenant was put in place for a purpose. Now, they broke it immediately. But when Moses went up on the mountain, the Ten Commandments were given. He comes down. They, they they're already got the golden calf. He breaks them. God gives them more. These are written by the finger of God. And so when he comes down, he's looking at this, and he says, Listen, Israel, do you want to be my people? I'm going to be your God. This is going to be good for you. Do you want to do it or not? They say yes. It was a covenant based upon promises on both parties. And with both parties comes a, a responsibility of, of a priesthood. And the priesthood was the only way that they could come to God. You could not go and make a sacrifice for sin on, on your own. It had to be done on your behalf. You would go and whatever sacrifice that you were given was always done at the hand of a priest. Now you would identify with it, you would bring it, you would pay for it, you would grow it, whatever you did, but you would bring it and then they would mediate that. And then ultimately there's a high priest. Now as we looked at this, we see that the high priest had to be of the lineage of Aaron. The priesthood itself had to be of the tribe of Levi. So there's a distinction there. So you could be a priest, but not be of the tribe of Aaron, and you'd have to be, you could be a high priest if you were of the tribe of Aaron. Otherwise, you couldn't. So they served in this priesthood, and we see all of this stuff going on. And we began to look at a guy named John the Baptist. But this is so crucial that you understand this. It's because with John the Baptist, we see a passing of the guard. And in John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, Verse 13, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to John and to, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? And Jesus said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fulfilling, fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, there's a statement made by Jesus here. He says, Permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What's going on? As I told you guys last week, if you look at the lineage of John the Baptist, his father was of the line of Abijah, which was of the line of Aaron. His mother was a descendant of Aaron as well. We know that Caiaphas, that was the high priest, was put there by the Roman emperor. And so he wasn't the ordained one of God because who chose the high priest? Well, God did. God put that high priest in there. Here is a man who was put there but shouldn't have been. I am of the opinion that John the Baptist should have been the high priest. He, everything fits. He's of that lineage. We know that because of what Luke tells us. So here's the question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? What is baptism? Well, first of all, the word baptism means nothing more than to immerse. Was Jesus immersing himself into the teachings of John? Sort of. But we've got to look at what happens. You see, in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1, watch what happens as the priesthood is being set up 
and Moses fulfilling what he's supposed to do. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. Now what's he do? Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He mikvahed them, thus anointing them as the priestly, high priestly lineage. Now we have Jesus coming to John, saying, to fulfill all righteousness, I must be baptized by you. What's happening there? In my opinion, and that's what it is, is that this is now the passing of the old covenant and a new priesthood is forming after the order of, the, of Melchizedek. Hebrews tells us that. We also know that in order for this new covenant to come in, the old one has to be done away with. And in order to fulfill the old covenant, Jesus could not be the high priest because he was not of the line of Aaron. So as we begin to connect the dots on this, we start seeing this happen. We also know that Jesus said that there's been no greater prophet than John. And he said that the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the kingdom of God has been preached. This is why I've come to this opinion, but why is that important? We have to understand what's happening here. That John, if he were the high priest, would have been ministering in the temple, doing the covenant or the, the, the sacrifices and all of that, and then one day a year, he would have atoned for the sins of the people. Now he has passed this on. Now we have this new covenant, which was ratified with the blood of the guarantor, which was Jesus himself. And with that, comes the promise of the Father. You guys with me so far? I know I said a lot of things, and I know this is probably not stuff that gets spoken about very often, but we have to see what's happening here. Because Jesus said, I want you to wait. I want you to wait until you're endued with power from on high. See, the promise of the giving of the Spirit was a part of this new covenant. Because now we can be indwelled with the Spirit because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit because we have been sprinkled and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So we're going to look today here. We're not going to go too far with this because I don't want to get too far ahead here. But I want you guys to be thinking of this. It's the passing of the baton and the giving of the Spirit. Is the Spirit within and the Spirit upon us that we're endued with power from on high one in the same? So let's look at this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostle whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive in his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Who's writing this? This is Luke. When he says, the former account I made, what's he referencing? The book of Luke. Good job. It's written to the same guy, Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but he was a man of means because essentially it seems as if he hired Luke. Go out there and figure out what's going on. He said in the book of Luke, I, I aim to write a more orderly account. And we know what he means by that because the writings of Matthew predated this and that Matthew was a thematic book. It's not in some sort of chronological order. It's, it's based on themes. So all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day that he was taken up, that through the Holy Spirit, he'd given commandments to the apostles, the apostles that he had chosen. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. 
One of which was he showed up in a room that appeared to be locked. He just showed up in the middle of it. He showed them his hands. He showed them his feet. He showed them the scars. And it was during the 40 days. Now, remember what Jesus said. I need you to tarry in Jerusalem until power comes on high. So for 40 days, past first fruits, he's resurrected. He's with them. He's giving them orders. Okay, let's go on. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times, the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what did we read at the end of John? They had received the Holy Spirit. So why did he say you need to wait to receive the Holy Spirit? We have to figure this out. Because he's making a distinction here. Now, there's a lot that's happening here. First of all, he tells them to wait. So there's a 10-day gap between the time that he leaves and the day of Pentecost. So penta meaning 50. It was 50 days from the days of first fruit after that Sabbath, that high Sabbath that was going on there. So there's a 50-day count that's going on. It has to do with, the, I think, the barley harvest. Am I getting that one right? It's one of the. They're harvesting something. It, all of these have to do with, with the harvest. And so he's telling them to wait. Now, every Jew... Every male Jew is supposed to be in Jerusalem, just like they were for Passover. They were supposed to be here. And then he makes a comment. John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we know that baptism is an immersion, okay? So we know something is going on. You're going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then they ask this question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Who did the kingdom belong to? The Romans. What did they think that Jesus was there to do? Set up the kingdom. Give it back to us. Let us control our lives once again. Because they were not waiting on the Messiah to come and suffer. They were looking for the ruling king to come down and set up his kingdom. That's why they said, hey, you know, when you set up your throne, can I sit at your left? Can I sit at your right? They're politicking for position already. They're wasting no time. they got to get in at the ground level. They know they got it good then. And what does he say? It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Stop. What times and seasons is He talking about? The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Thus, as we, this often gets used to talk about end times for, by people who don't believe that Israel has any part in it. But the bottom line is, is that there is a time that the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. How do we know that? There's the simple proof of this. It was promised to David that somebody from his line would sit on the throne forever. We know that's referencing Jesus. And he never did that when he was on the earth the first time. That is why we believe that there is the, what we call the millennial reign that is to come. When Jesus returns, he will rule from Jerusalem. If he doesn't, he didn't keep his word to David. That's a side note. won't charge you extra for that. Now, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So we know that this is talking about the promise of the Father. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. We're going to skip past the next part of Acts chapter 1. We're going to go into Acts chapter 2. Just so you know, in Acts chapter 1, they're arguing because Judas is gone. They need a 12th apostle. 
And so they set out some parameters, and they're saying, listen, we need somebody that was there from the time that Jesus was baptized. Why is that so important? As I told you, I believe that that was the passing of the high priest at that point. He then became the high priest able to mediate this new covenant. So he had to be there from that point and with him the entire time, seeing him resurrected. So it comes down to two names. Matthias gets put up there. Some will say, oh, they missed the boat. I mean, it's funny because Peter throws out two obscure psalms to say this is why we need the 12. They cast lots for it, and some will say, well, they got it wrong because you never hear Matthias' name again. I disagree with that. They'll say that Paul was supposed to have been the 12th apostle. I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the works of Matthias, uh, you can read it in church history. He was very influential. So side note of that, but we, it's irrelevant. But that's what's happening at this point. While they're hanging out for the 10 days, they're figuring out who the 12th guy's going to be. Now, in Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to get the meat of what we're going today. Starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So they're sitting in there. We know they're in the upper room. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. If you've ever seen movies made on this, what do you see? Their hair's blowing everywhere, all this crazy stuff going on. It's like a tornado in this upper room. The problem is, is it's a sound not actual wind, okay? It's trying to be accurate. So it filled the house, that sound filled the house where they're sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're filled with Him, and they're speaking in tongues. We will come back to that in addressing what that is. But here's what's going to happen, verse 5. And there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were they there? It had to be. They had to keep that, that Mosaic covenant. They had to come back. So they're from every nation, a part of Jerusalem, or Jews. They had to come back to Jerusalem. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, not just Jews are there, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, what's going on? One of the debates is, are they speaking the languages? Or are the ears being opened to hear it? Because they hear each one of them in their own language. There's 120 of them up there. So could they each be speaking a different language? Very possible. Is it the fact that maybe supernaturally their ears were open and they're just hearing those wonderful works of God in their own languages? And the answer is, sure. Either way, it's supernatural, right? Because they make a statement. How do they hear them speaking in their own languages? Those are Galileans. Okay? Now, do you know what a Galilean is? Not Nebraskan. <sighs> I work alone here, okay? They're the country bumpkins. Some would say Nebraskans, okay? All right, fine. Is it out of the way? Clear the air? Do you feel better now? You know, you're preaching at the Christian church next week. I may have to go and pop into that service. I will. I'll send somebody in my place. 
These guys are uneducated. They don't speak foreign languages. They can barely speak the languages that they were born with. You guys want to experience something similar? Get on YouTube. People who are born speaking English don't know how to speak English. Or read memes because apparently we don't know how to use pronunciations or, or grammar anymore. So they're shocked because these are not educated people getting up there and speaking in these languages and, and giving out the wonderful works of God because they speak seven different languages. There is something going on here and they don't know what to do with it because these are Galileans. I'll say Nebraskans just to make you feel better. They're on the other side of the river. You guys know the N stands for knowledge on the side of the helmet, right? All right. So they're amazed and they're perplexed. They don't know what to do with this in verse 12. Whatever could this mean? It's a good question. What could this mean? We're hearing this. What could this possibly mean? Verse 13. Others mocking saying they are full of new wine. In other words, they're drunk. They're drunk. They're mocking them. Like, Listen, these guys, they just... They've been going at this a while. They were in that room for 10 days. They were partying it up. We know that's possible because we see it in the Old Testament like for months on end. Kings would have these lavish parties and people were just drinking and drinking and drinking. So they're mocking. They're, they're drunk. They're just drunk. What's interesting is Peter standing up with the 11, verse 14, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, how did Peter know that they were saying that? It's question one. Because you've got 120 people up there. They're kind of loud. They're in an upper room. It doesn't say that they left. And it's not like they got multiples of windows and stuff like that. They had some. But they, he knows what's going on out there. He knows what's being said. So he said, they're not drunk. It's only the third hour. And I think that's like 9 a.m.? Yeah, 9 a.m. Listen, if you're drunk at 9 a.m., you got problems. He's like, this isn't what's going on. The other thing you got to understand is that wine was not typical wine. I mean, it was literally, it was lightly fermented, but it was watered down. I mean, it would take a lot. And the new wine was stuff that hadn't been watered down yet. So he's like, no, this is not. They're not drunk. It's only the third hour. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day. So what do we know? He is equating what Joel said with this event as being part of the last days. We know that was 2,000 years ago. So what do you think we're at? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This sums up all eschatology. In the last days I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Some will dream dreams. Some will have visions. You notice what it doesn't say? It didn't put an end in sight of when this would cease to happen. Because until the great and awesome day of the Lord, this should be ongoing. 
There's no end in sight here. He is saying that Jesus and the prophecy by Joel will pour out His Spirit. They'll all prophesy. They all will. You see, he's, he's making an equation. This is exactly what was happening. So we know that Acts chapter 2 is prophesied in the Old Testament, the great and awesome day of the Lord. We know that these signs that are coming, these have to do with the end times and all of that. Some of you guys like to spend a lot of time there and probably know that a little better than me. But look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs with which God did through him in your midst. Now what's he talking about? Remember the four Messianic miracles. They believed that when Messiah came, that he would only do those things. And here he was. He did all of those. He did exactly what was was set out for them. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Who decided that Jesus would be handed over to the Romans to be crucified? It wasn't the Jews. It was God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. These are words spoken by David. Who's David talking about? Is he talking about himself? Let's read on. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and he's buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, so therefore he can't. Hades means the grave, guys. It's not hell like we think of. Hades simply meant the grave. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body According to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. In case you didn't know what the promise of God was to David, about one from your line would sit on that throne for all eternity. Peter tells us right here. He's interpreting that covenant. It was a covenant to David, a promise made to him. Most will look at this, he was talking about Solomon, and yes, he was. But now we know that the Christ will sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, he's laying it out there for us. This is what's going on. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Who poured this out? Jesus. That's the he he's talking about. Being exalted at the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he poured out this which you now see and you now hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." Now you remember Jesus used this when he was getting questioned by the lawyers. And he said, who is the Lord that David's talking to? Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you 
and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, let's stop there. Let's hang out here for a little bit. You see, the promise is to whom? It's to you, your children, so their children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We're talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. The words that Peter says, we're referencing the, apostle, or the prophet Joel, not apostle Joel. Prophet Joel. It's to all who are afar off. That qualifies us. We're afar off. You see, it was out there. It was never an end in sight in this. There was never a time he said, yep, we're going to pour out this Holy Spirit and then he's going to, you're going to be empowered from on high to do miracles, but then we're going to stop them. Because now you've got the Bible. You don't need anything to confirm the Word anymore. That's not what it says. You remember when we talked about that? That we had some that believed that God no longer moves today because at the close of the canon of Scripture. We got some that believe that God sometimes moves, but it's completely at His will. And then you got the camp that believes that God's will is what it just says here. The promises to you, your children, all who are far off. If we're born again, we have a right to the Spirit of God. Now, what just happened? What did we see take place here? We watched men who were filled with the Holy Spirit wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and to be endued with power from on high. We see them speaking in tongues, and I said, we'll come back to that. They're speaking in tongues. The whole place is going crazy. Like, what is going on here? They're hearing the wonderful works of the Lord. They're hearing what's happening here. They're so confused. And Peter stands up and gives the sermon of a lifetime. Because 3,000 men come to the Lord. Now remember, this is the same Peter that like 50 days prior to this couldn't stand up for Jesus in front of a little girl. Something's changed. Something is different. He stands up, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin. You receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, because the promise is to you and your children and all who are far off. But look at verse 40. Now, we've read this before, but look at this. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as those who were being saved. Now, the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 people came to know the Lord. And what did they do? They continued in the breaking of bread. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in prayer. Every day they met at the temple. They had favor in the sight of the people. That's going to be short-lived. But initially, they had favor in the sight of the people. 3,000 people. We know at the giving of the law, because of the breaking of the law, 3,000 men died. We have the old covenant that was set out by a list of rules and things that they had to do that they couldn't keep, was mediated by a priesthood that was laid out there that had to be very specific. And we see with John the passing of that priesthood, bringing a fulfillment of that old covenant. We see at the start of that covenant, 3,000 men died, but the start of the giving of the Spirit is a part of the new covenant, what we call the birth of the church. 3,000 people come to life in Christ. 
That's so powerful. At the giving of the Spirit. And so they continued in this. And now, here's the question. As we begin to look at this and we go forward with this, the Spirit within and the Spirit upon. There's a distinction in Scripture there that we're going to begin to look at. Because we have to deal with what John says, that he breathed on them and they said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them to wait to get the Holy Spirit. There's something going on there. And it was so important that Jesus said, I don't want you to get to work yet. I want you to wait. You need that power. We're going to begin to look at this and we're going to begin to break this down. Because we, truth be told, guys, is we need to know what Scripture says. Because what we believe is that there is something called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That this is not the same thing as when we're born again. And when the Spirit comes upon you, now we have the power to walk in the fullness of the new covenant, doing the works of the ministry, that when we lay hands on the sick, that they recover. That that's a part of that. Some will say that there's only the giving of the Spirit that we receive within us, and that's it. But according to Scripture, as I will show you in the weeks to come, is that there's a secondary giving of the Holy Spirit, an endowment of power on high. And I will show you from Scripture how they cannot be talking about the same thing, that there is a distinction there. Because let's face it, we live in a weak church today. The church, for lack of a better term, has lost its teeth. It no longer walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. It walks in with knowledge, and it walks in with some compassion, and it walks in there with a love and good deeds but the birth of the church had to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have lost that in the church today. Or so we think. Because there's still a lot that's going on.